Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Yes, it's great to be with you, and and I, I hear you've been doing some new new reading. I finally lifted up my nose from Pride and Prejudice. I've been getting super into whether or not uh, Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy are yeah. really going to get together. <laughs> I'm dying to know. Yes, and you are inspired to do this reading by our guest this week, who is Haley Stewart. She is a self-described Jane Austen evangelist, and her new book is Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. Yeah, this is a really fun conversation. I have never read any Jane Austen, which is in contrast to you, I know. Yes, no, I've, I haven't read all of her works, but I think all but like two. And yeah. I've read Emma and Pride and Prejudice more times than I can count, seen all the TV remakes and movies. And so this was a very fun conversation for me to have because uh, I had never really connected it to my faith in any real way. But Haley makes the case for it. Yeah. And, you know, if you are like me or the way I was before I read Pride and Prejudice uh, and haven't read any Jane Austen, this is still a good conversation. Haley's super smart person, got a lot of interesting things to say. And we we, we try to make the case for why Jane Austen is really really like a a guide for life. And Mm -hmm. you'll be able to get some of that just from this conversation. Including life in the world of dating apps. Yes. What (laughs) would Jane Austen say about Tinder? Yes. Uh, But before that, in Signs of the Times, we are going to talk about the arrest this week of Cardinal Joseph Zen in Hong Kong. And then in As One Friend Speaks to Another, we're going to talk about Zach's new venture in altar serving. But before that, we should mention that our guest this week also provided us with a drink recommendation. Yes. So Haley's husband uh, distills whiskey, which is super cool. He creates the original Texas whiskey called Balcones. And so we picked up a bottle in Brooklyn where you can buy it. Yes. So we are drinking the original Texas whiskey, as you said, Ashley. So thank you to uh, Haley and her family. Cheers. Cheers. Good stuff. Don't know if I've ever Mm, had a Texas bourbon. Me neither. First and best. (laughs) All right. Uh, Before we get to this great show, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So I think that we're finally past the the last frost here in New York, which means it's time to start getting my garden in order. Yes. So you are a rare New Yorker who has a backyard. (laughs) Yes. It's not. I'm sure if you are not a New Yorker and came and looked at it, you probably would not describe it as a backyard, but it is an outdoor space that I'm very happy with and proud of. But it's like really hard to 
to grow things back there. Uh, I've still Especially got, edible things. <laughs> yes, I've got buildings like blocking the the sunlight that I might get. Um, but I, you know, we've had some success in the past with growing a couple of peppers and tomatoes. Um, but I want to get a little better at it, which is why I've been checking out how to grow anything: food, gardening for everyone on Wondrium. Yes, this is just one of the many wonderful audio and video courses that are available on Wondrium. Some of them through the great courses are taught by the top university professors. There are also documentaries to help explain the world around you and so much more. Yeah, so with how to grow anything, I'm looking at, you know, how to how to set a good foundation in your garden, planning for success. And the instructor does a really good job of, you know, speaking both to audiences that, you know, might have acres of land um, and also maybe just have a couple urban planters, which is more where, where I'm at. And, you know, some giving some low maintenance gardening tips because I'm also about that. I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to quit the podcasting job and commit myself full-time to gardening, although that sounds nice sometimes. Yeah. So like the Jesuits, Wondrium meets you where you are, wherever you are in your learning journey. So that's why we want you to also sign up for Wondrium. And if you sign up now through our special URL, you can start with a free trial when you sign up for the discounted annual plan. Go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Don't wait. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week we are talking about the case of Cardinal Joseph Zen, who was arrested in Hong Kong this week. Uh, Cardinal Zen is a 90-year-old former bishop in Hong Kong, and he was arrested and briefly detained on May 11th. Uh, He has been an outspoken advocate for human rights and democracy in Hong Kong, and he was released on bail after a couple of hours in jail. So obviously, anything involving the church in China is a very complicated subject and one in which I'm not an expert. But Zach, thankfully, you are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sort of. Yeah, I guess we should explain why I know maybe know a thing or two about this. So if you haven't seen this, I produced and reported a documentary uh, for America called The Catholic Church in China, a short documentary. You can find that on YouTube and we'll link to it in the show notes. You were actually in China for that. Yes. Yeah. No. So I studied abroad there in college and have been back a few times, including that reporting trip. And today I also am on the board of the US-China Catholic Association, though I should say I'm not representing them for for this part right here. This is just me and my thoughts. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to pick your brain on this story for for this version of Signs of the Times. So first, can you give us some background on who Cardinal Zen is? Sure. So Cardinal Zen was the former bishop of Hong Kong. So from 2002 to 2009, was made a cardinal in 2006 by Pope Benedict and since retiring, he's been a pretty fierce defender of human rights in Hong Kong and also mainland China and even someone who's been critical of Pope Francis and the Vatican's approach to dialogue with the Chinese government. But what has been his criticism? Just that you can't really dialogue with Beijing because they're not really a willing dialogue partner, right? Like they're not going to give up a lot. And he sees the Vatican as someone who's selling out communities of Catholics that have sort of suffered greatly under this regime over the past several decades. So someone who I, I guess certainly would advise a different approach than one that Francis has taken. Okay, got it. And why was he arrested? Was it connected to that or a different issue? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of remarkable because as you said, he's he's 90 um, and has been outspoken in the past, but it seems that he is arrested specifically for his involvement of an organization that is not a Catholic organization. It's called the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund, which w- was set up in 
2019 and kind of shut down in 2021, uh, but it provided legal aid to people who took part in the 2019 pro-democracy protests that were, you know, really big deal in Hong Kong. Um, this is just this is before COVID, so if you can rewind your brain back to that, this was a huge story globally. But there were a lot of people that were arrested, and security forces pretty well cracked down on that. And so this is a group that, you know, in support of human rights and free speech and democracy in Hong Kong was providing, you know, legal aid, cash bail, things like that. Okay. And can you explain the difference between Hong Kong and China? Because I think most people do not think of democracy as something that's happening over there. Sure. Um, so Hong Kong was a British colony for for a very long time, up until um, 1997, uh, when British handed over Hong Kong back to China. And part of that agreement, it established that uh, China would sort of allow Hong Kong back into the fold, but also allow it to hold on to its uh, way of governing itself and way of organizing its economy. So this was, you know, one country, two systems is the way that it's talked about. And so they were supposed to let that happen for at least 50 years. Here we are this year's, you know, marking the 25th anniversary of that handover. And a lot of experts would say that we are that the sort of two systems part is definitely blending into to one, one and a half, 1.2 systems, really. So Beijing doesn't manage directly what's happening in Hong Kong today, but they've exerted a lot of influence in a number of different ways, particularly in the last few years. And so just a few days ago, they elected a new chief executive, elected as kind of a euphemism because this is you know one candidate that was vetted by Beijing and sort of elected only by representatives on Hong Kong's council that were also sort of chosen by Beijing. And so a lot of people are seeing uh, democracy to the extent that it existed, definitely eroding right now. Okay. And what does that backslide mean for Catholics in Hong Kong? And how was their situation different than Catholics on the mainland before this? Yeah. So there was a lot more, I would say, religious freedom in Hong Kong before um, this these recent crackdowns. Um, I think, you know, supposedly there is religious freedom baked into the Chinese uh, constitution as well, right? So um, Catholicism is in one of the five approved religions in mainland China. But in the past three, four years, we've seen uh, Beijing apply a lot more pressure to Catholics on uh, in mainland China. And you know this also comes on the heels of the Vatican entering into dialogue with Beijing on the process of selecting bishops um, to the point where, you know, allegedly there's not really any more distinction between the quote-unquote underground church in China and the state-approved church in China. Um, now, I think some Catholics in China might take issue with that definition, but that's also how Beijing sees it right now too. So because they can go to Rome and say, okay, so all of the bishops are approved by by everybody. There's no more distinction. Okay, Catholics that were underground, get in line, right? Look, your Pope is fine with this, so why aren't you? And that's also happening at the same time as they're exerting more restrictions on you know, bringing children to mass is now technically uh, not allowed in China, right? So anyone under 18, you're not supposed to expose. You're supposed to kind of basically do religion um, with free and consenting adults inside the walls of the church. You're not supposed to like evangelize in any way. You can you can kind of do it there, but also we're going to point a bunch of cameras at you walking in. So we know. That was the situation in mainland China. It was different in Hong Kong. And now I think there's a great fear that uh, with the passage of this, there was a national security law that Beijing passed for Hong Kong in 2020. And Cardinal Zen is sort of arrested uh, on an article of that law. And so I think people are very worried that there's going to be even more crackdowns in Hong Kong, similar to the ones we're seeing in mainland China. Okay. And I know in the past you've been, I don't know if 
critical is the right word, but maybe it is. You've been critical of Cardinal Zen's criticism of Pope Francis and the Vatican for trying to open this dialogue. Um, one, has, has your thinking on that shifted at all? And two, like putting on your pundit what do you think this arrest will do to the Vatican's efforts? Do you think it'll make them maybe shift course? You know, that's a million dollar. That's a million dollar question, right? Um, you, I, you're right. I was I critical at times of someone like Cardinal Zen, who obviously like has a lot of credibility and respect. Um, but when this just two years ago, he said, you know, I'm prepared to be arrested. Uh, and I kind of thought that was overblown rhetoric. Uh, turns out it wasn't. Um, so he he certainly knew this was coming. Uh, I don't know. I, I I think the Vatican's in a tough spot, right? These are two very old uh, institutions. They have the long eye of history in mind when they enter into these dialogues and negotiations. I think the Vatican is in a tough spot because they have to dialogue in, to some degree, right? There are 12 million Catholics in China, and you can't just kind of you know, ignore them. Uh, I think it's true that Beijing is maybe not the most genuine dialogue partner uh, in in some of these agreements. But I tend to agree with, you know, this has been Francis's approach, but also Benedict and John Paul II to have at least some foot in the door to be able to have some channel of communication open. Um, You see that with Francis, um, how he deals with Russia and Cuba and maybe other countries that we uh, in the United States don't really understand why you would try to dialogue with those people. This is the the church's approach. And so I think they've still got to continue to try to do that um, because, look, the people on the ground are the ones who are going to suffer, not the people, not not just the diplomats. Okay. So what are you looking for next? What what does this mean for you know the, the current bishop of Hong Kong, who I think he was recently appointed and he's a Jesuit? Yeah. So a couple of things that that's one of the things I'd be paying attention to is, you know, he's he's brand new. He's got a He's got a Jesuit training and wants to be someone who is someone who facilitates dialogue between some parties that are not getting along. I also am looking at what's going to happen to the Vatican's deal with China, right? So this was this happened in 2018. It was renewed in 2020 um, without really any modifications. Um, and we've seen it's set to expire this October. And we've seen the Vatican say, we'd like to renew it, but maybe adjust a couple things. We don't know what those things are. The text of that agreement has never been made public, but you know that's going to expire in October. We'll see what happens. Um, I'm also looking at what's going to happen to Zen. Um, he's been released on bail as of recording on Wednesday. Um, is he going to be prosecuted? Uh, because you know mainland China controls the, the Communist Party controls a lot. What kind of judges are going to hear his case and what charges he's going to be brought up on? So um, is he going to be brought to trial? Will he be sentenced? And again, he's 90. Right. So he it's hard to say the optics of that are not good, but they're sending a very clear message to everybody watching. Right. All right. Well, I know I've made fun of you in the past for calling yourself a China expert, but you've (laughs) you've you've proved yourself worthy of worthy of the title. Well, it's it's look, it's a really complicated uh, situation and I would just echo maybe some prayers for uh, all the people there. And we will certainly keep our listeners updated on what happens next. And now stick around for our conversation with Haley Stewart. Joining us from Waco, Texas is Haley Stewart. 
Haley is a writer, speaker, podcaster, and the author of the new book, Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Haley. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here, and congrats on the book. Most importantly, congrats on finally getting Zach to read some Jane Austen. Yes. <laughs> All right. I, this is my first time. I did, so I read, um, to prep, I read Pride and Prejudice. That was my... That was Fantastic. my whole so, But I'm ready to I'm ready to, to read the rest of them. So Okay. This Zach, this is what I live for. Like I can't tell you how happy it makes me when people are like, You were really pumped up about Jane Austen, so I decided to try it and now I'm in it. I am in the whole thing. That you are like the great happen. evangelist. Well done. <laughs> Yeah. But and actually, I, I, you read a, a bunch of this before, right? Yes. Oh, I had. I had read, <laughs> I've probably read Emma like three times, but I had not read Persuasion. And so after reading your book, I, I didn't want to read the Persuasion chapter because I didn't want it to get spoiled. So then I went and read Persuasion, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> Ooh, fantastic. Sometimes I think that one's my favorite, but I. Yeah. Just you, you describe how she's a <laughs> 27 and basically facing spinsterhood. And so I, I could relate <laughs> as, a, as a single 31-year-old. I think for 27 back then would have been like even older now. So Oh, yeah. 27. So ancient. You yeah. Know, her, her decrepit 27-year-old <laughs> self. So yeah. funny. All right. So for those like Zach who are not as well acquainted with Jane Austen and her works, could you just start with a, a short short bio, situate her in her world. Sure. So Jane Austen grew up in a big family. Her father was an Anglican clergyman and her older brother was adopted by distant wealthy relatives to be their heir. So he was like, in it grew up in a different place, which is kind of odd to us, but didn't seem incredibly unusual back then. And she was very close to her sister, Cassandra. And they eventually moved to Bath. And then to after her father died, they had to move again to a cottage on her wealthy brother's property. And she wrote novels and traveled around a little bit in England and worked really hard to get her novels published. She never married, although she did accept a proposal at one point and then changed her mind by the next morning, which sounds like something that would be in a Jane Austen novel. So I <laughs> love that and I'm dying to know what, you know, what the situation was. But we don't know a whole lot of her inner thoughts during that time because most of her letters were destroyed after her death for her what are, privacy. What are the years we're talking about? So I believe she was born in 1775. And then she was only in her early 40s when she passed away. So she was very young, had kind of a mysterious illness, which we now think was maybe some kind of kidney disease. And then she died. So she was she had written Persuasion. She was working on another novel that never got finished that we now call Sanditon. And um, yeah, then she became one of the most influential novelists of all time, which I think would have and, surprised her. And how did you become get into Jane Austen and become the great evangelist? <laughs> Take on my, my vocation. <laughs> um, so I think that maybe my mom had read Pride and Prejudice, but nobody else in my family had really read Jane Austen. But my mom and I listened to Pride and Prejudice as an audiobook on a road trip when I was maybe 10 years old. And I just remember loving it and being completely enchanted by it. 
And then I grew up in the golden age of the 90s films. There was a really great Pride and Prejudice, a really great Sense and Sensibility. And so my family watched all of those movies and it just became like part of our family culture. So I just, at that point as a kid, I just loved the characters and the stories and the worlds that she created. And then I kind of started to dive deeper into her novels in college because I got to take a great class with just There were four students, and we were doing a reading course with a philosophy professor reading Jane Austen's novels as as a moral philosopher. You know, what can she teach us about moral philosophy, which was so fun. And then I've just been thinking about her as a moral philosopher and as someone who can show us and help us come up with good questions about how to live our lives and what makes someone a good person and whether there's hope for people who are very flawed, there's any way to to become a better person. And then what that has to do with our our faith as well. You uh, cite a story in a bookshop in the, at the beginning of your book about, I believe you refer to this guy as green polo guy. Yeah. Green polo guy. <laughs> um, who had said something about, he didn't really get why, why she was so popular. It's just kind of fancy, uh, uh, balls and estates and things, which reminded, I, I think someone today might ask is, is Jane Austen really just like the original Bridgerton or what makes her <laughs> more interesting or different than maybe yeah. some of our other cultural I don't think anyone is calling Bridgerton a source of moral philosophy. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that Austen does have something more to offer Although I do have a lot of hot takes about Bridgerton season one's moral <laughs> philosophy and ideas about human sexuality and marriage, but we're gonna stick with we're gonna stick with Jane today. But I think that there is this sense, especially for folks who haven't read a lot of Austin. I saw this hilarious review of Pride and Prejudice that was like one star. It's just a bunch of rich people going to each other's houses which is hilarious and like kind of true and obviously not all there is. But I think there's this sense that it's like, oh, you know, there's this Regency background and everybody's got all these rules and there's chaperones and there's the right way to dress and the right way to dance. And it's about navigating these social norms of the day, which I really don't think is what it's about. That's just kind of the veneer for the stories that it's really about how to become a good person, how to live in community, how to really grow from our friendships and relationships if we can have the humility to see ourselves clearly with the help of other people. And and so I think that for Austin, she doesn't include at least not very many true villains or angelic characters her characters are incredibly human. And as we read them, it's there's not going to be many characters that we can't relate to on some level and can make us spend some time in self-reflection thinking about, is it a good thing or a bad thing that I very much relate to Emma? Spoiler <laughs> alert, it is a bad thing, but it's a good thing to come to a realization about. Um, and so I think that that's why we keep coming back to her is because We never get tired of thinking about these characters and trying to decide, is Mr. Bennett a good person? Is Mr. Bennett a good father? You know, everybody has a take on that. 
And I think that's why we keep coming back to her because we can just dive into these characters over and over again. I definitely think anyone can take something away from from Jane Austen's novels. Uh, but I think for for me, kind of like kind of that surface level thing that might turn some people off about it just being about people going to other people's houses and navigating crushes and like that sort of thing. Like as a high school girl in suburban Virginia who I didn't have any like huge crises to face, but I, I felt things very deeply and I, I saw those those relationships and challenges that any high school girl is going to face kind of like reflected and taken seriously in, in Jane Austen in a way I didn't see elsewhere. So I think at least for me, that was that was my experience, and I, I unfortunately did relate to Emma quite. <laughs> I same same. Emma is the one I relate to the most, to my shame. But you know, she gets better, so yeah. there's hope. There's hope for us too. <laughs> Haley, I'm wondering what your answer to the question is about why why should Catholics in particular care about Jane Austen and her and her characters that are you know flawed and human? Yeah, I think that. Even though Jane Austen was Anglican, she is very influenced by Aristotle's moral philosophy. So she's going to have a lot in common with Catholic figures like Thomas Aquinas, who really drew a lot of truth from Aristotle. There's going to be tons of overlap. So I think what's fun about Jane Austen for Catholics is she's kind of speaking our language from Catholic tradition of the virtues and the vices, but she's doing it in a way that's funny and moving and really brings it to life in a way that if we just went to a lecture about the virtue of prudence, that might not change our life the way that we see Austin's characters have that virtue and see these examples and what that looks like. Could I be more like Mr. Knightley from Emma, who's very, very prudent. He knows what is right to do in these situations, and he has the courage to do that right thing. And so I think that's what makes her so fun for Catholics is she has these models and examples of what virtuous life or when we fall into vice looks like in human relationships. And I think from that, we can be really inspired to try to cultivate those virtues. So maybe we can focus just briefly on on her most popular novel, Pride and Prejudice, the one that Zach has read um, and many others have, and has been adapted in in many modern forms. Um, so so when you're talking about this this book as a guide to living a virtuous life, what what's like what's the big takeaway, and how does that play out through the fiction? Sure. So in Pride and Prejudice, it's such a great example of how sin clouds our vision, like really blinds us and keeps us from seeing. So our our two main characters, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, both to some degree are blinded by their pride. Their pride is getting in the way of them seeing reality, from understanding other people. Um, And so we see them make all of these mistakes due to their pride and then because of their relationship, which is it's kind of an enemies to lovers sort of situation, but as they get to know each other and interact with each other, they show each other that they are flawed. You know, 
Elizabeth Bennett did not realize that she was very judgmental and very prideful until she is interacting with Mr. Darcy. And he doesn't realize how arrogant he is until she points it out. And the thing that saves them both is they have the humility to hear that. They have the humility to face the truth and then move forward in cultivating that virtue. And so I think that it's just a great example of what sin does to us. And then how do we get out of that sin? How do we get clear moral vision? What does that look like? And I think for most of us, it's it's the relationships around us that God uses to bring that grace into our lives, to bring that clarity. You know, as a parent, nothing makes me realize what a sinner I am as <laughs> taking care of my children. And they always like shine a light onto my darkest, worst places. <laughs> and it's just, that's kind of what, you know, our relationships, our, our families, our friendships, that's part of what they're for is to bring us closer to God by showing us where, where we need to grow and where we need to have the humility to, to try to move forward. Well, and that's the, I mean, the interesting thing is that on the surface, these are, you know, this is a love story, but it's also as much about, as you're saying, like the other relationships that all these people have, and particularly the friendships too. What, what is the role of a friendship in Austin's novels? Yeah, I think that with friendship, some of her greatest love stories begin in friendship, like Emma and Mr. Knightley in in her novel, Emma. They're very good friends first and their banter and their, their back and forth. There's very much this iron sharpening iron kind of situation. I think that's what she sees in these good friendships is this desire for the other person to be able to grow and this affection and care for that other person, even as they are, before they've made that growth, that there's this support and care and and desire for good things for that person. And so I think in each of her novels, you can see these friendships, or you can see, I think in Persuasion, I know, Ashley, you've read that one recently, poor Anne Elliot is very lonely. You know, she's we see what it's like and we experience with her. And I think we can all relate to her being on the outside, looking in and feeling like you don't have these close friendships. And she does have a couple and one of those friendships grows more during, during the novel. But I think these, I think she's very good at showing how our families, you know, our brothers and sisters, parents, our friendships, even just our neighbors that aren't close friends are all really important parts of our community that can help us to grow and that we owe something to, that we do owe our, our time and energy to, to learning to love other people. Yeah. You mentioned how, you know, often there are uh, characters whose vision is is clouded by pride um, and they need to grow in humility. But often in the books, you know, the the turning point of the novel is humility coming through a moment of humiliation or, or real deep pain. So that's when I say I like relate with Emma. In her story, she is this rich, confident, selfish woman. You know, you mentioned her friend, Mr. Knightley. She's like the scene at the picnic and she like pokes fun at a woman who is in much worse circumstances than her. She doesn't even she doesn't even think about it. She just throws away a line, but like that causes uh, deep shame to this other woman. And Mr. Knightley calls her out. And it seems you know that could seem like a small thing, but 
in my own life there it you I would you know be pursuing friendships in high school and like trying to get in with the right people and unintentionally be hurting the people close to me and I had to be called out and it was really painful when I was and so I'm wondering if how how you think about um the role of of humiliation and in, in these novels. I will remind yeah. you of this, Ashley, my next <laughs> next time I'm calling you out. You, you grow in your humility yeah. and holiness. Yeah, I think I think that's a great scene to touch on. And I think that it it also shows how Austin is using these seemingly small moments like you know, the turning point of this whole novel is a throwaway line at a picnic that hurts someone's feelings. That's the big moment. And yet, it, as you said, that is true in our own lives. I think that's what makes Austin such a genius as a novelist is she's able to make these seemingly mundane, smaller moments of our lives. She, she shows the importance of them because that's really what our lives are made of. And most of us are not going to be out on the battlefield or in courtrooms or, you know, these dramatic um, moments in rooms with powerful people. Most of us, we're going to have days at a picnic where we're irritable and we say something and we realize that was really cruel. And how do I make it up to that person? Or we're you know, in a in a group of people and we have to decide someone's sitting all alone. I don't know them. They look uncomfortable. Am I going to go and make this party better for them by sitting and introducing myself and making them feel more comfortable? Or am I just going to go see the people I came here to see that I know well? And that's, I think that's something we can all relate to. It's a small thing, but I think those small decisions are what ultimately end up kind of forming our character as people. And I think Austin's good at showing us both why those decisions matter in our own lives and also how do we recognize virtue in other people or how do we recognize red flags? I love Austin's little red flags where it's like, he went to London to get a haircut <laughs> to his shame. You know, like it's like it's like a little detail, but it's like you're supposed to know something about him from this little detail. And I think in a lot of times in hindsight, we look at relationships and we think, oh, I should have known. Like, look at all these little things, but it's hard to notice in the moment. And I think Austin's observance about people and how they work and and what we can tell about the human soul from these little decisions. She just does such an amazing job at helping us explore that. And, and I think there's something deeply like holy about that too, right? Just the act of like paying attention and imbuing these small things with like great drama and great importance is, um, I know St. Therese is someone important to you, but that's, you know, part of her whole spirituality too, right? Is doing little things with great love. And it's not always that we do the little things with great love. Sometimes we do them with great indifference or great malice even. <laughs> um, and they end up having these like catastrophic things. And that was, I, you know, especially as I was just reading the beginning of Pride and Prejudice for the first time, I'm like, oh, nothing is really happening right now. Yet it's such a like, it's so fun to read still. Um, <laughs> even even when there's like seemingly nothing going on and there's like the pieces are all being set. Um, I absolutely loved that about my, you know, first interaction with Austin. Um, yeah, I think when kind of tying into what you're saying about the ramifications of these decisions, it, at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, you discover that Mr. Bennett, who's a very likable father, I mean, he's so funny. It's just, I feel tons of affection for Mr. Bennett, but 
none of the bad things in this book would have happened if he had just planned better for his family. He was he was lazy about planning financially for his family. He just knew there was potential disaster ahead, but wanted to read in his study instead of be bothered with figuring out how they could save some money for a rainy day ahead. And then we're stuck, like, that's what throws us into the novel. And so it's just this small flaw. You know, he's not a monster. He's not a terrible person, but he was lazy about taking care of his family. He didn't, he wasn't really fully living out his vocation with the love that he needed to. And so I think those are the sorts of um, interesting things that as you dive deep into it, you see these these ramifications. It doesn't mean he's horrible, but it does mean that he's flawed and we can all relate to that. Yeah. So as as we've been talking about, these books are not just love stories, but they do have love stories and weddings. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, your book is a genius guide to life. And I assume you mean life today. So um, what would Jane Austen say about kind of the current uh, dating scene and courtship and romance <laughs> in, in a world where it's dominated by apps? <laughs> oh, goodness. That's such a great question. I don't even know. I mean, I think that Austin, the way that she has conversations, the way her characters have conversations, they are often really getting at the heart of things. They, they are talking about um, deep things in the midst of very normal daily life. And so I wonder if she would could critique just the superficiality of the mediums that we have for getting to know people. Because I think that for her, being grounded in your community is a great virtue. And I think that maybe Emma is the best example of that, where um, selfish protagonist Emma has to learn to appreciate these people in her little town and, and learn to have compassion for the way other people feel and experience life. And so I think that that requires this kind of virtue of stability, almost like a Benedictine virtue of stability. I'm, I'm committed to this community of people, whoever they are. And so I wonder if that's one thing she would critique about this kind of mobile, superficial dating scene in isolation that we've we've created with different apps and things that can turn out really well sometimes. But as mediums, are, are they flawed just because of the way that they are, that we're not connected the same way and i think like just in terms of like uh all the first impressions that you have to make that are totally clouded by <laughs> pride and prejudice <laughs> like it, when you're swiping i feel like is would be it, it would be impossible for someone to even like grade on you so much that you have a conversion of heart about how you think about them because they've been disposed of in half a second right so like as you're saying like even being totally uprooted from that whatsoever, you don't have a chance to grow at all, I think, would be something I think too is really interesting. Yeah. No, I think that that is a great point that our society is very much a society of first impressions now. And in I think almost all of Austin's books, there's a moment of being kind of undeceived about either yourself or somebody else where you realize, oh, that's not who I thought they were. They're actually not an arrogant monster, as I assumed, or they are an arrogant monster. And I didn't realize because they were so flattering to me. And, and so I think that that is something that she 
likes to explore in her novels is how can we tell who someone really is just on the surface? How often are we are we wrong about someone and need to take more time to get to know them? So I think that's a great point, Zach. If if Jane Austen were writing today, what would be like the most common red flag in in our dating world? <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, I like think the small often, thing that you that yeah. I think often what she points out about these men that, that she wants us to notice these small red flags for. I think it's these little moments of selfishness, which I think is also something that you know any friend of mine who's in the dating world that's probably my number one advice is like don't get involved with a selfish person. Not that people can't grow, but you know that can be a very difficult road to be on. And I think that that's what she would say to look out for is is this person most interested in how others perceive them? in getting their desires met? Or is this person a very others-centered person, like, say, Mr. Knightley and Emma, who seems very aware of others' needs and very eager to to sacrifice, make little sacrifices for other people? That's that's my best guess. I'd love to hear her take, though. <laughs> I'm going to offer so- one. I'm In an era where most men are like not super emotionally available, if a guy is too emotionally available, like Mr. Wickham. That was big red flag Ooh, for me. Oversharing. <laughs> he was oversharing Oversh- right Mr. away. Mr. Wickham overshared a lot. And I was immediately like, this guy is very sus. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's such a great point. And Elizabeth perceives it as like, oh, he's confiding in me because I'm so special. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's just what he wants you to think. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's a great point. I love that. Yeah. And, so so Jane Austen was ahead of her time in the like judge your person by how they treat their their waiter at the restaurant. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I think that's definitely true. Um to follow the gender line a little bit. I'm wondering uh why is it that boys and men o- avoid Austen and why why haven't they been reading her and why uh I guess I mean this is an obvious question. I could probably talk to this too, but why should they? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I have thought about this a lot. I've had so many conversations about this, so I'm excited. It's not an imagined thing, right? It is like- Right, no, it's not an imagined thing. And I think part of it is due to the film adaptations presentation of the stories, which there's some good ones, there's some bad ones, but they all do play up the romance side of it and kind of downplay some of the other ideas to some degree. I mean, you're, you're making a film adaptation and it's going to lose some of the some of the story. But I think that's part of it, that it then Austin becomes kind of lumped in with like chiclet romance or something like that. And she's great at romance, but there's a lot else that's there. So I think that that is how she's perceived and why some guys – don't ever give her a chance. But I think the other piece of it is that maybe guys don't know that she's funny. She's so funny. And I think that that's, maybe she's perceived as this like very serious, somber, like spinster authoress kind of situation. And I remember when my husband started reading Jane Austen, he just couldn't believe how funny she was. Mm-hmm. He He's a trail runner. So he would listen to Austen audiobooks while he was running and he'd have to like stop and catch his breath because he was laughing so hard at these characters. And so I think that that's something we forget to tell people is 
you're going to like it. It's really funny. It's not boring. And then also, I mean, I think there's a little bit of misogyny there that her, a lot of her characters that the characters that you're hearing all of their thoughts and you're inside their head, a lot of these characters are women. And some guys just aren't interested in hearing that perspective. And I think that that's, I mean, it's it's hard to Explain Talk about red flags. It. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to explain it and not mention that, that that has to be a piece of it. And what's interesting is you've got, you know, G.K. Chesterton loved Jane Austen. C.S. Lewis loved Jane Austen. Anthony Trollope loved Jane Austen. Um, Cornell, Cornell West, West loves Jane yeah. Austen. He loves Jane Austen. And so this isn't – it isn't that men don't like Jane Austen. I think that men don't try Jane Austen. Is, is the problem. I'm curious, Zach, like what, if anything, did you think of Jane Austen before, before this? Uh, like, uh, it was part like, oh, this is a book I feel guilty for having not picked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also <laughs> it's probably like a, a little bit like Downton Abbey Bridgerton, which is not like, has not typically been my, my, the world I like to like inhabit and live in. Um, but cause I'm like definitely not allergic to romance stories. If anything, that's like my genre, but um, I definitely, I don't know, thought like, oh yeah, this is the, this is not a book that men typically read. Mm-hmm. Um, but turns out like, I don't know, it's so good. It's so funny. It's, I was laughing out loud on the plane um, with something <laughs> that Mr. Bennett said. I, I'm, I can't remember right now, but he's just so, so good. Oh, he's and, so funny. And I think that one thing for everyone There's this amazing lecture by Dr. Cornell West. He gave a keynote at the Jane Austen Society of North America conference a few years ago, and you can find it online. So you just Google Cornell West, Power and Freedom in Jane Austen's Novels. You can listen to the lecture. It's so good. But one of the things he points out is that Austen isn't just good at writing female characters. She's very good at writing male characters in a way that most male writers cannot write male characters that are complicated and female characters that are as complicated. And so that's, I think, one thing that maybe we don't tell guys is there's also really great male characters in these novels. And there's going to be um, just a lot to think about of how people are supposed to behave. And I, I think that's kind of what she's getting at is what is the right way to act to other people? And what is that say about us? How can we do better? And I think her hopefulness is also something we can really connect with as Catholics, because as Catholics, we're always messing up and having to go to confession and start over again. And I think she's good at showing how these flawed characters they have the opportunity to do that. And we watch some of them take that opportunity and we see some of them not take that opportunity. But there's there's hope. We see that this could turn out differently for them. They just need to begin again. So the book is Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. Mm-hmm. But before we let you go, our, our last question that we ask all of our guests, uh, if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, fictional or real, <laughs> uh, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm going to say, because I just finished rereading Eugene Vodoloshkin's novel, Loris, which if you haven't read it, it is so good. And 
I'm going to say the main character of of that of that book. I think that he could be a saint. So it's a novel set in medieval Russia, but it was written just in the past few years and it's definitely up there in my top novels ever. And why would this person be worthy of sainthood? Um, Because they learned to order their whole life for the love of other people. Okay. All right. Well, St. Lawrence, pray for us. (laughs) One more time, the book is Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be by Haley Stewart, and it's linked in our show notes. Haley, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing some Jane Austen wisdom with us today. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for reading Pride and Prejudice as as prep for this. That makes (laughs) me so happy. (laughs) No, thank you for turning me on to it. it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Want to remind people one more time. Just kidding. We'll do it again. Uh, But we're going to Italy this fall, and we want you to come with us. Uh, Again, we're going to Rome, the Vatican, Assisi, Tuscany, and more. uh, And it's from September 17th through 28th. Sounds like a lot, but it's only eight work days. Yep. So that includes weekends. If you're counting your <laughs> if you're counting your vacation days, like a lot of us are, um, that's important to note. Um, signups are still rolling in. We're we're welcoming new people every week, so it's a good time to register right now. And I just want to just say one thing because I've been asked this question um, on both fronts. People have come to me and say and said, "Am I going to be the only old person on this trip?" Am I going to be the only young person on this trip? Uh, The answer is uh, no. We've got a very cool group coming together right now, and we are friendly to all generations, uh, young, hip, and lay, young at heart, hip at heart, and lay at heart. (laughs) So so, so sign up. We really want to see you on the trip. Yep. We will have that information in the show notes. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And Zach, you have recently taken up a new ministry at uh, our parish. Yes, I I feel weird talking about it after only having done it two times, but uh, this is probably a good time because it's very fresh and my humility is being tested every every time I do it. Uh, But I've recently started altar serving at our parish. That's right. As an adult man. Yeah. Uh, I've <laughs> so it has a different name at our parish. You're, you're a master of ceremonies. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. And we have a pretty high liturgy, I'd say. So yeah. it's it's pretty involved. There are there are bells and smells, mm-hmm. a lot of incense. You have underlings. <laughs> underlings is not, I don't think, the, <laughs> That's not the term. official term. <laughs> okay. No, but I, I did uh, this past week serve with two other altar servers who were, uh, I think they were Lucifer's is the, the light bearers. They, uh, okay. uh, yeah, which is, I've, I always thought was weird. That yeah. They called it that. Um, um, but yeah, it's been it's been interesting because I uh, never really altar served as a child, and so it may look like I know what I'm doing, but I very much do not. Um, and so, what I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what it means to kind of get involved in a ministry um, at this point in our lives, and also um, some things I've been learning. Like I, I 
so this past week, they they paired me with a couple of, I'll just say around 10 year olds who clearly knew what they were doing much more than I. And I was reminded of St. Ignatius going back to like grade school to learn Latin as an adult. Yes, I was in the pews and can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> it looked a little funny that, yeah, thank you. What would you grade me, by the way, my I, performance? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to say B, B minus. I think that's very honest. Yeah. <laughs> like there were, you know, some constructive criticism. The 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 swinging of the incense needs some could be needs better. Some works. Could yeah. be. I need to workshop that. That's true. <laughs> I know. I never know if it's two or three that you're yeah. supposed to when you're like incensing everybody. Um, it's either two or three. Um, but you know, I've really appreciated. Uh, I was invited into this ministry, and I said yes because it's hard to say no to Father. Um, and I, I'm, I've got a whole new perspective on our parish community from being up there. Um, just being able to kind of like look out and see everybody that you know drags himself to mass is it, it's very different than when you're also back there just kind of looking up and mm-hmm. watching what's happening. You feel like a participant in a new way. You feel like a member of the community in a new way, um, and you feel a sense of church in a new way, or at least I have. I don't know. I know you've also done some some liturgical ministry. Yeah. So I, I've been a Eucharistic minister and a lector at, at our at our parish, at least uh, before before the pandemic. Um, and it, it totally did. I, I found it extremely moving to be the person like giving the host to each person who walked up to me in the parish and just like really seeing them and connecting in, with them in that way. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm someone who doesn't like to be in front of a crowd. So I was also competing with these conflicting voices in my head that are saying like, this is good. You're serving the community. And like, oh, this isn't about you. This is not a big deal. Anyone can do this. And like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed because I just messed up that reading. And so like having all of that in the context of like trying to be present at the mass was a new experience for me. Mm. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, There's like a lot of I think a lot of people feel this just about being involved in parish ministry or parish groups in general. Right. Like um, there's this give and take about whether or not you want to do it or whether you're doing it for the right reasons. But, you know, ultimately, like, I feel like it's helped bond me to the community much more. Just in the first two weeks, I've even done this, right? Like, I won't even pretend like I'm an expert at it. I've still got a lot to learn, clearly. Also, setting, like, preparing the altar where the altar server kind of takes the chalice and unpacks everything, mm-hmm. way more complicated than it looks yeah. like. I just If you just Google like uh, preparing the altar diagram, there's a lot going on yeah, there. That you're just I, shuffling things around. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I tried to do it reverently, but I definitely need a little bit more training. I'd yeah. Say. And a, li- a healthy dose of humility always. Always, always good for good me. Thing. Yeah. In particular, I'd say. <laughs> Uh, well, thank All right. you. Well, I, I look forward to watching your progress up there. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn with production assistance from Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media and is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? 
If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.